If you have your Bible to hand, we're turning back to that 22nd Psalm. And it really is a most remarkable and extraordinary portion of Scripture that we have set before us for at least two main reasons. Reason number one is its amazing prophetic character. This psalm was written by David about a thousand years before Jesus was born, but the experience that is recorded here goes far beyond anything David himself went through. David did experience a vast amount of suffering and persecution in his life, but the thoughts and the articulation of suffering that is present in this psalm transcends the earthly life. Of David. This is a prophetic psalm revealing in advance what was going to happen in David's great descendants' life. Things that were foreshadowed to a degree in David's own experience, but realities that were seen in their fullest and ultimate sense in the life of Jesus Christ. This is one of the many messianic psalms that we find. In the Old Testament, Psalms that point forwards to (coughs) Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the Son of God. And uh, that's confirmed by the frequent quotation of this psalm in the New Testament. And so we read here of mocking crowds shaking their heads. Uh, We read of the uh, derisive cry that would come from those mockers. We read of extreme thirst. On the part of the the speaker in this psalm, we uh, read of the piercing of hands and feet all uh, hundreds of years before uh, the events and indeed before crucifixion was invented. We read of the division of of garments by lots and the very words that the Saviour would cry out as he hung there on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the Psalms are often referred to uh, by their first line. So although Christ spoke those specific words, uh, by uttering them, he may well have been intending to uh, draw attention to the Psalm and its contents as a whole. So what we find here is a detailed description of the Messiah's suffering centuries before it actually happens. And the second reason why this is such a remarkable psalm is its profound and glorious theme. Uh, The psalm takes us to the most important and momentous events in all history. It takes us to the the cross of the Lord Jesus where he died to save sinful men and women like us. And the the Gospels present this event to us in much Detail, uh, but here we have it from Jesus' own perspective. So here is an amazing insight into the inner anguish and distress of uh, our Redeemer as he suffered on that cross. It's as though we have here a fifth viewpoint into the horrors of Calvary, which supplements the gospel narratives. As the psalm lays bare to us the internal sorrows within the heart of Jesus as he voluntarily lays down his life for sinners. 
And it reveals to us in a most astonishing way the incredible debts he went through. And doesn't that drive home to us very powerfully what a remarkable thing is that he, the chosen one, the heir to David's throne, the one destined to rule over all creation for all eternity, that he can express an experience he's passing through in the very emotional and heartfelt cries of this psalm. Shows us how far God was prepared to go to redeem lost mankind. And there are three key themes found in this psalm which we're going to consider in turn this morning. And the first theme we can see regarding the Messiah is his tribulation. His tribulation. And when he came into our world and lived as a man here on earth, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, was plunged into anguish and woe, which really was worse than anything that anyone, anywhere in all history has experienced. He experiences a level of torment and distress that transcends that of any other person. And we find him giving voice to that torment here in this psalm. So what is it that he had to face? Well, he endured derision. If you look at verses 6 to 8. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. When we consider the true identity of the Messiah as revealed in the pages of the New Testament, that he is in fact God manifest in the flesh, then are these not absolutely extraordinary lips to come from the almighty creator of heaven and earth made man? I am a worm. That's quite a description for the maker of our entire universe to use about himself. I'm a worm. But that's how he's being treated by the very creatures he himself has made. That's the level of contempt that's being directed against him as he suffers there on the cross, as prophesied in this psalm. I'm like a worm, he's saying, like something subhuman, loathsome, and worthless in people's eyes. He's, he's being, as it were, trampled Underfoot, like an undesirable invertebrate, crushed like an objectionable creature that no one really cares about uh, crawling there in the mud. That's how people regarded Almighty God when he wore our nature and trod upon our earth. Everybody is pouring out their disdain towards him. He's the one who put the stars into space. He's the one who fashioned this planet on which we find ourselves today. But here he has become an object of utter hatred and scorn. He's being mocked and mercilessly ridiculed uh, by those whose very breath is supplied by his 
almighty power. Finite specks of dust made by him and yet they look upon him now and he's made to feel like a worm. What a contrast to what he experienced in heaven. Verse 7, he says, Now all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They, they shoot out the lip. They shake the heads. Sarcasm and cruel joking is all that he is being bombarded with as he, as he hangs there on the cross. But what he truly deserved to be receiving was undiluted praise and worship that's what the angels rendered to him in realms above he'd been engulfed in their love and their admiration but now the only words he can hear are words of vileness and malice and vitriol people are shaking their heads at him they're jeering and cursing and taunting and goading we hear some of their very words verse 8 he trusted on the law that he would deliver him let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. If you really are the Son of God, come down from the cross and we will believe in you. And, and these, these words there in verse 8, they are uh, directly uttered by those surrounding the cross, as found in Matthew 27, verse 43. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders challenged Jesus to come down to prove his claims identity and how tempting it must have been for our Lord Jesus to to come down and show himself truly yes to be the son of God how tempting for him to uh, prove his identity and reveal his glory and descend in a blaze of wonder-working power but he, he stays there on this cross enduring all these insults and all this reviling this indignity upon indignity that's being heaped upon him People whose very existence is derived from him. People whom he had a right to wipe out in an instant. But he, he holds back from vengeance. He refrains from retaliation. He allows mankind to treat him with this utter contempt. What did the Messiah have to pass through? So that you and I might sit here today as safe, redeemed Children of the Lord, such derision. And he endured physical agony. Down in verses 14 to 15, he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. So his whole body is now racked with intense pain and discomfort and weakness and exhaustion. He feels as though all vigor and energy has been drained from him. His entire frame feels dislocated and out of joints. His heart within feels like it's been completely dissolved into liquid, such as the distress that's overwhelming him, his physical strength and vitality have been sucked out of him so that he he compares himself to a hard dry broken piece of old pottery and he feels this intense thirst which may at first appear to be a relatively minor complaint but real prolonged extreme human thirst 
is actually, according to the testimony of those who've had to endure it for long periods of time, one of the most unbearable experiences is possible for a human being to have this burning, aching, unquenchable yearning for even just a few drops of cool, refreshing moisture. And all in all, he feels here like he's been cast into the dust to be swallowed up whole by death. He's consumed with misery and woe. What a situation for the Son of God to be in. The one who's so powerful that he could call a whole universe into being. The one who demonstrated his might by commanding a storm to stop and instantly it obeyed. The one who could turn water into wine and summon corpses out of their tombs. He's now emptied of all bodily might and he feels utterly faint and enfeebled and weary and helpless tormented with agony and pain a physical wreck hanging on a cross barely even looking human anymore that's what the messiah had to pass through so that you might be spared such eternal torment and be lifted up to glory, physical agony. And then he endured violence and humiliation. Look at verse 12. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me. Rounds they gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. So the Lord Jesus feels as though he's surrounded by a herd of vicious bulls. We can imagine them snorting loudly and with horns lowered and maybe raking the ground with their hooves ready to charge. That's the kind of imagery that's being used here of the the, the human uh, crowd around him. The, The image changes in verse 13. They're like a ferocious, hungry lion. Then in verse 16, he says, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and feet. So wicked men encircle the Savior now like a pack of wild howling dogs. They've been baying for his blood and now they watch on with extreme satisfaction as he suffers before their eyes. It wasn't just verbal abuse that Jesus had to endure from them. He was the victim of brutal violence. The New Testament reveals he was scourged and struck and beaten. He had that crown of thorns rammed down onto his head, and then his bruised and battered body was nailed onto a cross, and his his hands and feet were pierced. He experienced the horrific torments of that most grisly and gruesome method of execution devised by the Romans, the method of execution from which we derive our English word excruciating. It was the most hideous form of torture. Jesus didn't just suffer. We could go further and say he was tortured for us, both in the lead up to and upon the cross itself. And accompanying this this cruel violence was utter humiliation. In verse 17, the Messiah says, I may tell or count all my bones. They look and stare Upon me, the the strain of all his sufferings has weakened and disfigured him so that his his bones have become visible in many cases. 
they've become prominent under his flesh and the, the crowds are, are looking upon him with this uh, smug uh, sense of triumph. There he is, emaciated and bloodied, looking so humanly pathetic and pitiable and wretched. Even his very clothes stripped from him and now spoil for the soldiers. They part my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? As recorded in John 19, 23 and 24. But what a terrible indignity for the Lord of all creation. Exposed and looked upon with contempt, the laughing stock of the masses, the butt of jokes, an object of pure ridicule. That's what the Messiah had to pass through if you were ever to be released from the chains of your guilt. But all of that pales into nothingness compared to the ultimate suffering he had to go through. Worst of all, he endured forsakenness. There in verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In all these terrors and torments that he was facing, did Jesus have the comforting sense of his father's nearby presence to console him? Did he, he feel his, his father's closeness, that reassuring sense of God's warm paternal embrace? No, even that was removed from him. He was forsaken, he says here, left derelict, abandoned. He's all by himself. The father, the one who had been his continual source of joy and delight, the one whose closeness he had continually experienced, not just prior to his incarnation, but throughout his life, he enjoyed that unbroken sense of fellowship and communion with his dear father, the one who had encompassed him continually with a sense of his love and approval. He had now, in one sense, withdrawn from him. He hadn't removed his love from the sun, uh, but uh, the, the sunshine of his manifest favor has been blocked out and utter darkness engulfs the Lord Jesus. You can hear the distress and the agony, the anguish in his voice, can't you, as he, he calls out in the darkness, why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. This was the chief sting of the Saviour's afflictions. There are many others in history who faced derision. There are many others who faced extreme physical agony. Many, many women have suffered great violence and humiliation, but now as The Messiah hangs there on the cross. Jesus uniquely feels the full weight of divine anger bearing down upon him as the Father in wrath forsakes him. He's banished from God's presence. He's cast into this hellish blackness. All sense of the Father's love and approval was gone because all the sins of God's people from throughout the ages had now been placed onto Jesus. And so it was appropriate for God the Father to manifest his judgments 
and displeasure against that sin. That's what was symbolized by the terrible darkness that fell upon the earth. God was acting in judgment, but he wasn't judging the wicked. The judgment was falling upon his own son because he was bearing on his own innocent shoulders the sin and the guilt of the wicked. (coughs) And no one else on earth has ever been forsaken in the way that Jesus was forsaken on the cross. The Lord's people are told by God, never will I leave you nor forsake you. And even unbelievers in this life are not fully cast out of God's presence. That doesn't come until the next life. But here, Christ endures the horror of distance from his father. He can find no relief or comfort to fully assuage his horror as he suffers there on the cross, despite the cries that he's continually offering up, both on the cross and leading up to me. I cry in the daytime. He cries in the night season, he says. What an incredibly awful experience For the one who loved his father so dearly to now be passing through to to feel his condemnation bearing down upon him. Not a personal condemnation of the son for he had no sin and the father continued to love him. But the condemnation due to those the son was representing. The people uh, who are his people. That's wrath and judgment being felt in full by the substitutes on the cross. Many were the terrors endured by the Son of God when he took up our nature and died in our place on that cross. And why is this recorded in Scripture? Why do we read of all this suffering being faced? What was the purpose of it all? Well, he he did it all as our Savior. These were substitutionary sufferings. The rest of the Scriptures makes that clear. Jesus As he goes through this on the cross, he's receiving the punishment due to others, due to stubborn and rebellious, unworthy people like us. He didn't have to go through all of this. He he could have come down from the cross as the people were taunting him to do, but he, he voluntarily chose to go through every single last second of this suffering out of love for unworthy enemies. And so what we're reading here is absolutely incredible. We shouldn't really be able to get over this, however familiar we are with the basic facts of the gospel. What's the answer to the question, why? With which this uh, psalm opens, why hast thou forsaken me? What's the explanation for the Messiah, the Lord of glory, being treated like this? You are. I am. It's for us, for God's people. That he's forsaken. He's being pierced for our benefit. He's passing through this wave upon wave of horror so that we might be spared such horror ourselves and be saved. His suffering pays the price for all the sins of all God's people from throughout all time to be washed away forever. And so you and I are to make these historic excruciating sufferings here the daily resting place for our hope of acceptance with God. Every single day that passes is another day when you just don't cut it. You're not good enough. You're not up to scratch. You're not worthy of acceptance by the holy God of heaven. And so every day your mind and your heart need to go back 
to what was born, by you, born for you by another. This psalm is your refuge. This psalm is the place where your confidence must be staked. The truths it reveals, the suffering, the tribulation felt by the Son, by suffering in our place, that barrier between us and our maker has been removed. He has managed uniquely to purge our sin away forever. And that's why this person, the Son of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he must be where all your faith day by day continues to be staked, staked in him as the saviour. And as we call upon him, he's able to save us from our sins. A second truth, more briefly, we can observe here about the Messiah, though, is his triumph. The latter part of the psalm shows that his cries for deliverance were, in fact, answered. The the earnest prayers we hear him offering up in this psalm, they were heeded. Not in the sense of him being spared from his sufferings, but in the sense of him being brought up out of it in the end. So verses 22 to 31 of this psalm sound a very different note from earlier verses. Gone is the anguish and the distress, and it's now a a note of triumph and victory that dominates. Because Jesus, though he suffered much, he was fully delivered out of all his sufferings as will all his people. The gospel story doesn't end with his sorrow and agony on the cross. He did suffer immeasurably. He was abandoned by his father. He did have to shoulder that crushing weight of God's holy anger against the sin of a great multitude. He did physically die. He committed his spirit into the father's hands so that all that was left here on earth was a corpse which was then put into a tomb But he didn't remain in the grave. The body wasn't held indefinitely in that tomb. He was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That's the deliverance that the Messiah experienced. His physical bodily resurrection following the sufferings on the cross. Not escape from suffering but being brought through suffering into the glory that followed and that's the pattern for us god nowhere promises that those who follow his son will be immune from suffering in fact it's guaranteed that in some form in some measure we will have to face tribulation in this world and god doesn't say he will spare you from that but just as the son was brought through to the other side and into glory that will be your experience though we suffer with him yet we shall also be glorified. And and here Jesus is anticipating what will come after his suffering. He he says uh, with with this note of certainty that he will live on to proclaim God's greatness to his brothers. Verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. He's just uh, spoken a few verses earlier of being laid into the dust of death. But that's not going to stop him from singing the praises of his father. He knows there's hope beyond the suffering that he's currently going through. And um, that verse there is quoted in Hebrews 2. And the verse there identifies who Jesus' brothers are. They're those who become children of God through faith. And Christ is not ashamed to call such people brethren. 
And here he is in this latter part of the psalm calling upon those brothers of his, calling upon the Lord's people to to praise and glorify God, to stand in awe of him because he is the God who hears the cries of the afflicted and rescues them. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. When one cries to him, he hears and delivers. The Messiah himself will praise the Father, he says. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. Verse 25, uh, Jesus Christ is not only the rightful recipient of praise from God's people, but he's a fellow worshipper along with them of the Father. He's not just uh, hearing the praises of his people, but it's as though he gathers with us as his brothers in the Lord and joins us in glorifying his Father and ours. He pledges that he's going to continue to serve the Lord along with all the meek who seek the Lord. That's verses 25 to 26. And in in the final verses, he, he prophesies a great turning to the Lord from across all nations with all manner of different people bowing down before God, acknowledging his his kingship over all the earth and and serving him. People from from all the ends of the earth, people who are prosperous fat with the goodness of this earth, people who are dying and, and going down to the dust. There will be this vast spiritual offspring that the Messiah will live to see, a great multitude, a chosen generation of people who will endlessly be joining him in singing the praises of his father. And what would be the message that would echo down through the centuries from these people? Verse 31, that he hath done this, or as it could conceivably be translated, that it is finished. Those were the words Jesus uttered just before he yielded his spirit to God, because his death was not a failure, but a triumph, a fact that the resurrection demonstrated beyond all doubts. There was great fruit born from Christ's sacrifice by laying down his life on that cross for sin. Jesus achieved his entire mission. He, he realized the goal for which he'd come into the world in the first place. He had successfully turned aside God's wrath and redeemed there and then back at the cross. That's when he redeemed us, a great multitude who would everlastingly be sounding the praises of their God. And that is the great end and goal of our salvation. It's not just about us attaining personal safety. It's about glory and praise redounding to the God who has brought about the deliverance. And so we, we should see the Lord Jesus here in this psalm, not only as the Savior, but as the great herald. He's the one who, who summons us to join him in the worship of his Father. He's the one who proclaims God's name to us, reveals God to us, so that we might, as a result, praise him, that we might proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvellous light. And that's our great mission as his people here on earth, to convey that message that he has done it, he has wrought deliverance, that... Uh, The wonder of salvation has been finished 
by the Messiah. We're to be proclaiming that and summoning men and women the world over into the worship of God. Not just calling them to believe in the Lord Jesus that they might have a personal deliverance from being in trouble with God. But so that they might add their voices to the ever-growing chorus of praise redounding to the name, the worthy name of Jesus. That's the ultimate aim of salvation. Not just an individual person's comfort and well-being, but the acknowledgement and acclamation and adoration of the greatness of God. That's why you've been saved. That's why you are numbered, if indeed your faith is in Christ among the saved people of the Lord. That's the point of you. That's your reason for existing that you might draw attention to and magnify and sing the praises of this great delivering God. So there's tribulation in this psalm, but there's also triumph. Because as a result of the suffering, not only is Christ personally delivered from death and lives on forever, but we ourselves, through faith in him, share in that glory and come to know and recognize the greatness of God. Thirdly, as we finish, a final truth we can note here regarding the Messiah is his trust. His trust. Even though he had to face this worse uh, suffering than anyone else in history, even though he was plunged into these dreadful depths of woe, can you note in this psalm how his faith does not waver even one inch. Uh, his trust in his father remains so firm and strong and steadfast throughout. So we find uh, interwoven with the expressions of suffering in this psalm, some very powerful declarations of ongoing faith in the Lord. And look at verses 3 to 5, for example. Thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. He's looking back upon God's faithfulness in the past to saints of old and how they in their extremity called upon him and found him to be the God of salvation. And the implication here is that just as you were to them in the past, so you will prove to be to me. He's relying upon the God who has saved already previously. Even though he's presently in such anguish and misery, he, he knows the Father is still completely and entirely worthy of his confidence. He will bring him through this, and so he clings on to him, even though there seems to be such a mighty chasm between them at this point. He's going to carry on staking his faith in him. He's, he's been trusting the Lord throughout his whole time on earth, and... The Lord has never let him down. He speaks later in verse 9. Thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was on my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. The entire course of his life has been characterized by this confidence and trust in the Lord. And that trust isn't suddenly going to evaporate now that he's plunged into extreme suffering. 
The God of his earliest days, the God of his childhood, the God who proved himself in the past, the God of his youth would now be the God of his dying hours, the God he would continue to lean upon and cleave to no matter what happened. And even though there was this sense of such distance, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Verse 11. And then look down at verses 19 to 21. He's continuing to commit himself into the care of the God who has forsaken him. Even being abandoned by the father as he experiences the judicial sentence for sin that we deserve. Even that isn't going to persuade him to let go of God and give up. He says, verse 19, be not far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the uh, unicorns. Exact identity of the horns creatures there isn't clear. It could well be uh, something like wild oxen. But the point is, uh, the powerful imagery of him being in the clutches, as it were, of, of fierce animals... Where's he looking to for hope in in this situation? He can only look upwards to his father, the father, uh, the sense of whose presence he cannot feel in the way he has in the past. And yet he's still going to look to him in the darkness. You're the one who can deliver me and save me. He knows that there will be eventual deliverance from his faithful father. You've rescued me in the past, he's saying in effect, I know you will deliver me Yet, from this situation, even in the utter darkness of dereliction, even though he's facing the full unleashed fury of hell, even that doesn't have the power to extinguish Christ's faith throughout every stage of his life and throughout every moment of his sufferings. No matter what befalls him, he he holds on tenaciously to his God and will not let go. And as well as being our saviour and as well as being the great heralds, Jesus here is our example. His suffering is redemptive. It saves us from sin, but it's also meant to be a pattern for us. That's how the Apostle Peter uses the sufferings of Christ in his first New Testament letter. He suffered, we're told, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And he goes on to speak in 1 Peter 3 of how he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. If we follow the Lord Jesus, we will have to suffer in various ways. It is inevitable. Just as for him, the cross came before the crown, so it will be for those who are united to him through faith. But whatever happens, whatever portion of affliction we may have to face, however bad things become, however dire things feel, even if we lose our sense of closeness to the Lord, even if we feel at times as though we're under a black, heavy cloud, though we will not be forsaken nor left by our Father, but even if we cannot perceive his presence at times, we're to carry on believing in the darkness. Why? Because our confidence in God is not based, is it, upon feelings, upon sights, upon observations. If your faith is based on any of those things, it will not survive. Faith has to have a surer foundation, even than personal feelings or experiences we may have passed through. 
Where is the Messiah's faith staked here? It's, it's based in the objective fact of God's character, that he is holy and faithful and almighty and able to save. It's, it's based in the objective truths of God's word, because those things never change. Your experience, your circumstances, your situation will be changing all the time. And so you, you cannot depend upon anything that is earthly or subjective. You need a, a solid, firm foundation for your faith that means the faith won't evaporate when the storms bombard you. Is your faith like that? Is yours just a shallow, superficial, fair-weather faith? that's strong when everything's rosy for you, and as soon as pain comes along, it flees. A faith that's just based upon some subjective notions about God, a faith that's just based upon a warm, fuzzy feeling you might have had in the past, is not a a lasting faith. It needs to be faith that's rooted in the rock-solid revelation God has given of himself in his word and... That revelation is something you can hold on to even in the darkness, even in the furnace, even in the deepest of pits. This is the kind of faith that Jesus Christ himself is modeling for us here. And that's the kind of faith we are going to need if we're to persevere through the trials and tribulations that Jesus says we can expect to face if we take up our cross and follow him. Your faith must not be based upon what you can see or sense or feel but on the unchangeable character of the everlasting Jehovah who delivered the fathers, who delivered Christ himself, who's been delivering saints these past 2,000 years and who will assuredly deliver you and bring you to glory as well. And so here is a psalm that presents almighty Christ to you in a most striking and magnificent way. Look here at his tribulations. And rejoice that he went through all of that to be a saviour for the likes of you. Look here and see his triumph and hear him now as the herald as he is continuing to summon you to your life's purpose. Which is not to live for yourself and to be wrapped up in your own concerns. But to be taken up with this great saving, delivering God, your life's purpose is to bring worship and praise and glory and renown to the one who is king of the nations. And look here and see his trust and go out this week and copy him as your example, knowing that those suffering may come and may come very fiercely in the presence. It's not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be Revealed the glory that we shall share with you, with him, the glory that will continue everlastingly in the age to come.